0: I'm a lot more comfortable behind a computer screen than I am behind a live mic, but I'm really excited to have this opportunity. I'm glad you all are here, and I hope maybe we have the chance to learn together this morning. So um, let's start with prayer. Father, thank you for your love and your care and your attention. Thank you that you want us to know you, and thank you that you know us. Thank you for loving us so well. Thank you for giving us your word. And use it, Father, this morning to teach us more about you. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to cheat a little bit. I've got everything that I want to say to you written out here. Uh, my family will tell you that when I get excited about something, my attention sort of wanders, and the train of thought goes way off the track, so I'm hoping that this will help me kind of focus. Um, Okay. Um, A lot of you already know that my dad was a Southern Baptist minister. He uh, (laughs) probably most people who knew him would remember him this way. He didn't wear that robe all that often, but um, he usually was pretty cleaned up like that. Spent a lot of time in that office behind the desk where he's sitting, studying and preparing to preach So most people who knew him as a pastor would remember him this way. But the people who know him really well, like our family's very best friends, would remember him this way. Um, About the time this picture was taken, I was about six years old. This is my dad here with his best friends, Troy and Joe. They spent a lot of time fishing. And I don't mean like fishing because it was fun and because they got to hang out in the boat and because they enjoyed being together, which they did. They fished to catch fish. Like if you went fishing and you caught like three fish, the day was a total failure. This is what they were after. Every time they went, and I don't remember very many times they didn't come home with catch about this size that ended up on our dinner table that very night. Um, Fishing was really important to my dad. It was also really important to him to teach me stuff. So when I was about six... About the time this picture was taken, he took me fishing for the very first time. And I loved when I was little to tell the story of how he took me fishing. I'd never been before. He, of course, was a seasoned fisherman. I caught 14 brim and crappie, and he didn't catch anything. (laughs) Love telling that story. Um, Here's how that happened, though. In the days leading up to the trip, my dad watched the news every single night, particularly for the weather. Vic Shedler was the weather guy on Channel 7 in Little Rock, and my dad watched him religiously, particularly the weeks that we were going fishing because he wanted to be sure the weather would be good. So he had his eye on the weather. On the morning of the trip, he got up probably four in the morning way before the sun was up. He uh, loaded all of the stuff into the boat from the night before. He... um, Packed his tackle box, loaded the boat onto the trailer. He filled up that igloo with ice, snacks, lunches, and drinks for the day, for the two of us. He woke me up, and after I was dressed, he tied my shoes. He reminded me to go to the bathroom. Um, We got to the edge of town, he stopped to buy gas. He bought live tackle, minnows, and he bought my favorite breakfast, which was Twinkies and Mountain Dew. And then while I slept in the back seat, he drove us to the river. So when we got there, he guided the boat in the water and then he parked the car. He sprayed me with off. He smeared copper tone on my face, my arms, my legs. He zipped me into my life jacket, put me in the boat, told me where to sit, fired up the outboard motor. He dropped anchor at one of his very favorite spots where he'd been millions of times and knew that the fishing was really good. He baited my hook. He showed me how to cast a line And he helped me reel in my catch 14 times in a row. So, yay me! (laughs) Big day for me. Um, When I was a kid, I loved telling that story um, because, of course, I smoked my dad at fishing, which I thought was awesome, which I thought had made me really awesome. But it wasn't until I was a parent myself that I thought back on that story, and I realized it was not about me at all. The story was about my father. And I think about how often we read the Bible and we... Think the story is about us, the story is about these people we come across, these people we meet, these people in all you know types of circumstances. We forget that story's really not about them, is it? The story's about the Father, right? So um, got a little confession. I used to think for most of my life that the Old Testament was just a huge snooze. Like I hated reading the Old Testament, hated it. Whenever there was a sermon about the Old Testament. My face would do this, but inside, I would be like, ah, oh, because oh, oh, it just wore me out. My was so boring. It just felt to me like all these unrelated things that happened over like zillions of years that were completely unconnected with each other, no one thing having anything to do with anything else, and especially no one thing having anything to do with life as we know it here. Right? It seemed kind of like a waste of time. Like, there's the creation, and the garden, and the snake, and the sin, and then there's the flood, and a bunch of kings, and wars, and tons of people with insane names that nobody knows how to pronounce, a lot of sand, a lot of deserts, and basically God making rules from a distance, and getting mad when people didn't follow him, like, you know, cosmic hall monitor or something. Like, basically it felt like the Old Testament was 4,000 years of God being in a really bad mood, when I started actually reading it though, made made a difference. This redemptive thread that we've talked about so much lately began to be apparent. And that makes all the difference, doesn't it? Like when you see God move, when you see God's hand, you see God's thoughts and God's heart, it makes all the difference in the world, right? In the way we read scripture. Um, this, this thread, it's a constant revelation. You know, it, it reminds us, like John said a few weeks ago, reminds us that God's plan for redemption didn't start on the cross. It started in the garden. It blows my mind. I mean, think about that. God had that plan in his heart and in his mind at the very beginning, before, before even the beginning of the world, Scripture tells us. I think that's really powerful. Um, he's constantly inviting us into a relationship with him. He's constantly inviting us to know him better. I only saw that ever in the New Testament and never in the Old Testament. Um, I think it connects for us all the times that God works his extraordinary plan through fractured, broken people, like all of us, even though he needs no help from anybody to get things done. He gives us that privilege, right, from time to time. He invites us in to where he's at work and gives us the chance to be a part of that, and in doing so, invites us into transformation. One of these folks is Hannah, who we're gonna talk about more in a little while. Um, But first, I want us to get caught up on where we left off last week, because there's tons of stuff that happened between Moses and Hannah. Um, When we kicked off our study, this study arc that follows the uh, narrative lectionary, we skipped some ground, right? Early on, we started in Genesis and moved through Genesis and most of Exodus relatively quickly, but we can sort of think of those gaps as like commuter flights. We've got to think of this as like a flyover way to study the Old Testament. So we can think of those, those shorter gaps as commuter flights. From last Sunday to today, this is like a transatlantic voyage. Tons happened in that, in that um, middle time. Um, by the way, if you want some evidence of how not boring the Old Testament is, you've got to read this for yourself. Because like seriously, Game of Thrones has nothing on the Old Testament. It's intense. Um, so where we left off, God's decided to destroy the Israelites because he's mad because they built the golden calf while he and Moses were up on Mount Sinai. And Moses talks him down from the ledge, convinces him to give him a second chance, right? So Moses may be feeling pretty proud of himself, makes his way back down the mountain, and sees the golden calf for himself and loses his mind. So he is just as mad as God was. And this is so gross. I think everybody on the teaching team knew this, except for me. Moses got so mad that he, um, he burned up the calf. Julie's not, and you knew this too. I think I'm the only person who didn't know this. He burned down the calf. Did you all know? Burned it down into powder and put it, Tim's not, put it in the water and made him drink it. I'm sorry, that's, uh, that's, that's horrible. So, um... So after they have to drink the calf, Moses calls out everyone to stand up if they're for the Lord. So the men who respond then are sent back through the crowd, and they're told to kill, each one of these men told to kill their father, their brother, their friends. Like 3,000 people died that day. And then Moses said, since they had made that sacrifice, now they were consecrated and they could start over. Um, The Israelites all the way through, all the way through the Old Testament, particularly in these intervening years, We're on this roller coaster of loving God, being disobedient. Loving God, forgetting God. Loving God, breaking the rules. Um, It's like a Sour Patch Kids commercial. First they're sour, then they're sweet. Then they're sour, then they're sweet. It's it's very schizophrenic. God's good and faithful, and he keeps his promises. He meets all their needs. He never gives them one reason to think that he's not faithful, that he's not going to be there. He's not going to do what he says he's going to do. And sometimes they care, and sometimes they don't we've got Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. God gives these mind-numbingly specific instructions about how to do everything, how to worship him, how to live, how to build the the tent of the tabernacle. Um, He's given Moses um, all the instruction to pass along to the Israelites. And again, sometimes they're obedient, sometimes they're not. And because of that unpredictability, they spend 40 years wandering around in the wilderness looking for the land that he promised them they would take. we've got Joshua and Judges where the Israelites take the promised land led by Joshua, but once they're in, they start to be distracted by the gods that are worshipped by the people of the land. And so again, they lose their focus and take these gods as their own. So God names judges or rulers to lead them in scaring off their enemies because this... um, this idol worship has made them vulnerable, and they've gotta have some help to overcome their enemies. So God sends the judges. Some of these names you might know, Deborah, Gideon, Samson, Eli, who we meet today. And then the last of these judges is Samuel, who was born to Hannah, who was desperately shamed and heartbroken and barren. Um, so let's hear what the scripture says about Hannah. Jeff, beginning with chapter one. This is verses nine through 11 and then nine through nine, excuse me, 19 and 20. On one occasion in Shiloh, after they had finished eating and drinking, Hannah got up. Now, at the time, Eli the priest was sitting in his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's temple. Hannah was very upset as she prayed to the Lord and she was weeping uncontrollably. She made a vow saying, O Lord of hosts, if you will look with compassion on the suffering of your female servant, remembering me, and not forgetting your servant, and give a male child to your servant, then I will dedicate him to the Lord all the days of his life. His hair will never be cut. It skips to verse 19. Uh, This is Hannah and her husband Elkanah. They got up early the next morning, and after worshiping the Lord, they returned to their home at Ramah. Elkanah had marital relations with his wife Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. After some time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, thinking... I asked the Lord for him. So a little background here. Shiloh is where Joshua had pitched the tent of the tabernacle years before. At this time, it was the home of the tent and the Ark of the Covenant, pretty much the headquarters of the worship of Jehovah. Um, It was also home to Eli, the high priest, and his useless sons who were the officiating priests. Elkanah was following the law that required every Hebrew to make the journey to Shiloh three times a year to celebrate and to give sacrifices to God at the feasts, uh, Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Tabernacles, and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is the Passover. Um, he brought his whole family with him, which included Hannah and his other wife, Peninnah. Now, we don't know a whole lot about Hannah, except that she has a really deep sense of shame and inadequacy and insecurity because she can't have children and she has a sister wife, this Penina, who was brutally brutally, emotionally and verbally abusive to Hannah. This she dealt with, particularly at the time of the feast because when they were, like, in their regular life, they lived separately. Probably didn't run into each other a whole lot. But when they traveled together, they were in each other's presence almost the whole time. And ironically, this is the time that the time they were supposed to be celebrating God's provision, and God's protection, and God's sufficiency. This is the time that Peninnah kind of showed her worst side. And she took every opportunity, according to Scripture, to really kind of dig the knife in and make Hannah feel extra horrible, as if she needed any help feeling worse than she already did. Um, childlessness, y'all probably know this too, childless, childlessness was grounds for divorce um, in the Hebrew culture. And it was really kind of seen as a woman's problem. And most people assumed that if you couldn't have children, it's because you did something to make God really mad. It's because you were cursed. And I don't know, I can't, it's hard to imagine living that way living under the weight of something over which you have absolutely no control and feeling every day of your life like a complete failure to yourself and your husband and your God. So after Peninnah had stirred up, I guess, probably an extra amount of abuse this particular day, Hannah has had enough. So in verse 9, she goes to the temple to pour out her heart to God and to beg him to hear her and to remember her and to answer her. She's making a lamentation before God. Now, I feel really convicted when I read that passage because it causes me to kind of examine like, how I pray when I have something on my mind, something that's really important to me. And I realize I don't pray with this kind of fire or intensity. Um, makes me think about a story about my nephew that I wanted to share with you. When he was in the second grade, uh, his teacher read the novel How to Eat Fried Worms to his class. So she gave the class a writing prompt after they had read this book, and she asked them to imagine if they were going to cook something creepy or crawly. You know, she wanted them to think about how they would do it, and then to write a very specific list of instructions about how that would go. So this is what Will wrote, and if you can read it, it says: um, How to eat fried wasps. First, I will wash my wasp. Second, I will fry my wasp. Third, I'll cut it up then I will put salt on my wasp. I will eat it. I did not like it. (laughs) You know, God's proven himself to me over and over and over again, just like we read the way he proved himself all the way through scripture, particularly in the Old Testament, the way he proved himself to the Israelites and provided for them at every turn. They never had to want for anything. They never had any reason to doubt his faithfulness. I believe he loves me, and I believe that I can trust him. But I realize that like when I'm really angry about something, or I'm grieving, or I feel helpless to change a situation that's making me scared or anxious, and I have to have some relief. All I can see really is a heaping plate of salty fried wasps, often. I'm about to pray, and God ignored me. (laughs) Sort of the way I feel. I don't know if you all can relate to that or not. Um, if I'm honest, I think I assume on some level that despite what I believe to be true and what I know to be true, the evidence that I have to count on, I don't think God's really listening. I don't think God's really probably going to remember me. Why would he? Why would he possibly remember me or care? But whether or not God remembers who we are is never a question. You all know that, right? Right. He does. The question is whether, like the Israelites, in all their disobedience and self-centeredness, we remember who God is. Now, Hannah's story is not some YouTube tutorial on how to get God to do what you want him to do. I don't think the particular answer to Hannah's prayer is really the issue here. I think our takeaway is that despite her circumstances, Hannah believed God to be who he says he is. Like Moses did last week, Hannah wrestled with God, and in the process came transformation, which is what he promises us in relationship with him. When we come to the throne and we wrestle with God and we engage with God and we make ourselves available to God, he promises transformation. Hannah remembered, and she invites us to remember so we go to chapter two. This is Hannah's song in response to God's attention and God's remembering. Hannah prayed, My heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is exalted high because of the Lord. I loudly denounce my enemies, for I'm happy that you delivered me. No one is holy like the Lord. There's no one other than you. There's no rock like our God. Don't keep speaking so arrogantly, letting proud talk come out of your mouth, for the Lord is a God who knows. He evaluates what people do. The bows of warriors are shattered, but those who stumble find their strength reinforced. Those who are well-fed hire themselves out to earn food, but the hungry no longer lack. Even the barren woman gives birth to seven, but the one with many children withers away. The Lord both kills and gives life. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord impoverishes and makes wealthy. He humbles and he exalts. He lifts the weak from the dust. He raises the poor from the ash heap to seat them with princes and to bestow on them an honored position. The foundations of the earth belong to the Lord, and he's placed the world on them. He watches over his holy ones, but the wicked are made speechless in the darkness. For it's not by one's own strength that one prevails. The Lord shatters his adversaries. He thunders against them from the heavens. The Lord executes judgment to the ends of the earth. He will strengthen his king and exalt the power of his anointed one. Now, maybe you can't relate to Hannah's particular pain, but in this song, she prays not only on behalf of people who are barren, but on behalf of those who are feeble, hungry, poor, low, and needy. And I think that covers just about all of us. I know it covers me, for sure. Sure. Wherever you are, you know, whatever's going on in your life, whatever's going on in your heart, God sees you. He remembers you. Hannah's song of praise invites us to remember who God is, to remember and to be transformed. The worship team's going to come back up in just a second, and as they do, I want you to think about who you believe God is. In your heart, who do you know him to be? Based on what he's taught you, based on what you've seen, based on your experience. What's your song of praise today? Who do you say God is? What's the truth that you're celebrating this morning? I want us to think about that together and to to praise him together. Uh, In the back of the room, there are a couple of pads and and spin markers on the table. Um, When you come to uh, the communion table, or even if you don't, as we're, as we're observing communion, I want you to think about that question. Think about what you're celebrating today. Think about the truth of God. And if you would, if you feel led to or comfortable, write down one or two comments on the pads at the back of the room. There are markers back there. Uh, if you're following along on the Uversion app, you can also find a link to um, a Padlet page where you can write um, online. Also, in your bulletin, there's a QR code on the back If you have a scanner on your phone or your iPad, you can also um, access the page this way. When we get them all together this afternoon, I'm going to compile them on the iPad. We'll make the Padlet link available so you can see them on the Facebook page. We're going to offer you a chance to give to the ministries of our church because that's part of our offerings, part of our praise and worship. Um, And also take this opportunity to pray If you need to pray by yourself Or or find someone close to you Ask them to pray with you Take as long as you need There's another thing that my dad really loved He loved communion In the Southern Baptist Church We call it the Lord's Supper He would call it the Lord's Supper If he was here And he always served it from a table That looked just like this one That sat across the front This do in remembrance of me My dad believed that remembering was sacred, that God's faithfulness was never in question. My dad would have been 80 years old on Friday, this past Friday. Um, He died a year and a half ago from complications with Alzheimer's. It was always really interesting to me that no matter how much he forgot, which was a lot, (laughs) he... um, he always responded to hymns, particularly that spoke to God's faithfulness. Whenever he would hear a hymn, his his eyes would tear up, he would begin to cry and he would sing. He remembered the words and he would sing along. And remember, I think, even in his darkness, even in his lostness, he remembered. Clearly, though, even in his forgetting, God didn't forget him. At Grace Church, our table's open to everyone who's seeking Jesus and community. We don't dismiss by rose. If you've been here before, then you know that. But if you're new, just come as the Spirit leads you. Um, one more thing, if my dad was here, he would think that we had not had the Lord's Supper without these words from Luke 22. Then he took bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it and gave it to him saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that's poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So come to the table. Come and remember and be transformed.